Every now and then I get a little crazy. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes my vision is a little hazy. I can't tell who I should trust or just who I let trust me. Yeah. People try to say act a little funny. But that's just a figure of speech to me. They tell me I changed because I got money. But if you were there before, then you're still done with me. What about your friends? <laughs> Will they, they stand their ground? Will they let you, you down again? What about your friends? Are they going to be low down? Will they ever be around? Oh, wait, that is their person. Was it me? Is it me or my little too friendly, so to speak, hypothetically say, I supply creativity to what others mistake is a form of self-hate, only to make an enemy, which results in unfortunate destiny. They turn me down, then, then be next to me just because I am what some choose to envy. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, girl, I wasn't coming in on that. That was all you, girl. Um, how we feel about that? Eric, you should have just done the whole thing. You had that, girl. Yeah. No, no. I, you know, T-Boss got that low voice. I can't do that. Oh, she said you tra- She said you could get clocked, Ms. Devereaux. She said that you got that low voice, girl. <laughs> I got that low trait. <laughs> girl, I got the opposite of that, girl. Yeah. Oh, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. Welcome back to To Save Queens, one of the few places in the Fair where you can hear a conversation about politics, dick, and authors. That's right, baby. You got an <laughs> author on, an authoress. <laughs> I am an authoress. Yes, <laughs> own it, own it. Yes, we be inventing words on this show. Uh, I'm your hostess, Malachi. I'm joined by, um, now nah, I don't know if this girl's ever going to write nothing like that. Miss Devereaux. <laughs> Right, right, nothing like that. You got a book in you, sis? You got a book in you? Oh, no, I ain't ain't got a book in you. I feel like if you could, like, uh, what's it called? If you could, um, I could do short form. I'm just not a book. I don't even like to read that many books, girl. So, I mean, how am I gonna write a motherfucker? Actually, no, but my mom, my mom did it. She's not. And she ain't no big Ooh. reader, girl, but she wrote that book. Oh, oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> I was just about to say, because you could do like, um, you can, um, why can I not think of the word? When you're just like talking to someone and they're just typing what you're, oh, well, like on that word. Oh, right uh, like oh, a, dictation. Um, dictation. Yeah, you could dictate. Like, and use, or use a ghost, or use a ghost you writer. Could do that like, too. Yeah. What low key is kind of crazy, because I like, I didn't ghostwrite my mom's book uh-huh. when I was a teenager, but I did low key, ch- like I did low key do all her edits for her scoop. when they came in back. Yeah, girl. Oh. Yeah, that's you a really working too, for your yeah. mom. I love that. I love that. I do a lot for that girl. Yeah, yeah she owe you. She better leave you something good. Um, yeah. And this week <laughs> we have our first guest of season two. They're a longtime friend of Miss Devereaux. Uh, why don't you do this intro, girl? Yes, girl. So my longtime friend, Miss Erin Foley, is a journalist and author living in Brooklyn, um, but hails from Detroit, like me. Uh, by day, he's an editor at the PBS NewsHour. Okay, big deal, ho, big deal. <laughs> and where he manages the program's communities initiatives. By night, he is an author of both fiction and nonfiction, with his first novel, Boys Come First, 
uh, coming out in spring 2022. Now you played me with that because I thought that shit was coming out any no, day, and I, I pre-ordered said, that shit. It clearly said, as someone who claims to have ghostwritten a book, Ooh. you know how the publishing industry works. You <laughs> announce the book first, and then it comes out a few months later. But yes, girl, that was <laughs> I ghost wrote that book in 2002, 2003. Okay, and that, was wasn't that, long ago. that wasn't that Okay, all right, okay. He is also I didn't ghost write that. Should I just mm-hmm. edit it? Okay. I didn't ghost write. <laughs> He is he is also a contributor to This American Life and his freelance for several national publications. A Detroit native, he was a uh, the city of Detroit's first chief storyteller. Ooh, I love so that title, chief that. storyteller. Yeah, yeah. especially as a black, came up, oh, black. I came up with that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you create, you basically co-created that. I role, did. Right? Like, I did. Yeah, I'm, sta- I'm standing in there. Yeah. And a former magazine editor and automotive writer. Uh, but although you did write about more than, I mean, you did write about automotive, but you also wrote about like general interest and general news stuff for a while too. You know, Ooh, so. a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Yeah, definitely, girl. So just like let's reminisce just a little bit. Like <laughs> girl, like how do we know each other? How girl? do we know tell each the, other? Tell the girls how we know each other. This, yeah. I mean it no shade at all. Like uh no, cause cause it will get shady at some point. I just know. But <laughs> okay. no, no, okay, okay but seriously, seriously. Okay. So what had happened was um my mom and Devereaux's mom were friends. They're both single parents mm-hmm. around the same time in the nineties. And you know, uh this was before our siblings were born. So um they were hanging out. I used to go over Dever- to Devereaux's house. Um, and I remember because Devereaux had the Disney Channel, we did not, and vice versa, like mm, you know, like what's moneyed, honey. Yeah, and they were I don't remember you ever coming to my house. I always remember going I to your house. It's oh. weird. Cause you had the court, you all you had the little apartment courtyard and stuff. Like I remember. But she had the birthday party with the clown. Oh that's, yeah, yeah, sure. I used to. Now I used to have those big birthday parties. I really no, because yeah. I remember we used to. Your mom had a minivan too, I think. Right? Something. I don't remember. I remember. I think so. But <laughs> but <laughs> see see see. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean we we were we were we were very young friends um, back in the early nineties. Uh, lost touch. Was that was that even the late eighties or was that? It might have been. You know, it could be nineteen eighty nine, but. I, I, let's yeah. let's say 1990. Let's say 1990. Because I because I will say I went to the preschool. I went to the preschool and kindergarten across the street from your. College. That's right. So yeah, no, and that was in like I graduated from kindergarten in 1990. Right. So yeah, so let's just say to date myself because I went to that same school. Remember, I went to that same school a little bit before you did, and we had this. We had the same teacher at different times. Like, you went to you went to we'll just say that you went to friends. Yeah. You went to friends. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. No, because my mom put me out of friends. And put me, and put oh, me in DPS. Okay. But she didn't she didn't like oh but, okay, well, okay. I'll tell that story off. <laughs> it's a public it's a pu- she's a public school girl. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a public I'm a proud public school girl. See, but anyway, see, see, I see I was trying to give a non-shady version. Anyway, anyway, so um, you know, we got older, <laughs> lost touch and whatnot, and then I saw Deborah on Facebook and I reached out. I was like, Hey, remember me from you know, blah blah blah. Aww. And um at this point, like our lives had gone in, um, I would say, different directions. But then we both realized that, you know, like, oh, he's gay, he's gay. Like, we should be friends. And so, was this high? Was this high school tea or college? college. It was. It was after college. Okay. I had. Oh, yeah, okay. was, maybe like um, maybe like immediately after. College. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, we were. For, yeah. yeah, we were still young. Yeah. I was with 
my ex at the time. And um, I, I honestly did not have that many gay friends because of my ex. And so um, I was looking to make some new friends. And, I, I, and, you know, Facebook, that was when Facebook, you could look up anybody back then. And so um and i will always i i think that's how it happened like i will always see devro's like face or something like that i'm like i know him i'm gonna add him on facebook and here we are look at that so how long cumulatively almost that word almost tripped me up how long have y'all known each other would you say we either met in somewhere between 1988 and 1990 because that birthday party i had for sure was in 1990 it was like my fifth birthday party so we met and i think we knew each other before that so i feel like it's somewhere Almost. between 88 and 90. And even though, like, we didn't see each other all the time, our moms were always on the phone with each other, always seeing each other. So still kind of, like, in the atmosphere. Like, y'all weren't catching it, but, like, you still knew about, oh, Devereaux did this. Seriously, though. Seriously, though. Not to be shady against my mom, but... She is. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I well, no, not to be shady against her, but no, 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 no. Not because I know I already shaded her on the book tip, but she was never really a, a, really a single mom because... <laughs> She was when she met her second husband. She was still, um, <laughs> she was just she you was had... sep she was separated from her first oh, husband. So you, my 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 real. dad, yeah. So I'm just okay, saying, so real business. No, so she wasn't days. she wasn't really no single mom. Like she went from one marriage to the next. I, yeah. It wasn't no man in her life when I met her. But I'm <laughs> well, there was there was as far as well, was, you didn't know when you were five. I was, I was six. I was. I was Okay, so they both had that. I mean, my mom. Well, you know, she was engaged for that uh, around that time. She was no, but your and your parents were married too. You weren't no, you know, you were you were born in wedlock, girl, too. And so you, (laughs) no, so you. I mean, your mom was a divorced mom. Our our moms were divorced moms. That okay? Let's say that they were born. Yeah, they weren't like you know what i'm saying it's no wrong to be a, ba- a bm a baby what mom the- but i'm saying that they they weren't baby moms like that you know what I'm oh saying? you was just trying to make yes. that distinction <laughs> yeah, yeah i was, was that, my, my mom well, she will be highly offended my mom will be highly offended oh if you say she God. was a single baby mom she would just like say that, yeah. it's nothing wrong yeah. with being a single mom either though it isn't like, it isn't yeah. he just saying his mom would he be just, he's just like, I'm not she would, yeah uh, move it on, girl. Move it along, girl. What's next? And so, Miss Malachi, so I introduced, I brought you around 2015. How you got introduced to Miss Malachi is you came to my 30th birthday party in LA and you met all the girls, including Miss Malachi. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we all got acquaint- acquainted. And then even later that year, we all traveled to New York together. Mm-hmm. And Was LA um, first or was New York first? I can't. LA, LA, LA was first. Okay. And then, because my birthday's in the spring and then... New York was in the fall. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we traveled together twice in that same single year and then and then even later on we all ended up traveling to Columbia. Columbia together. Girl. Yeah. Ooh, I hate that girl. Yeah, I can't yeah. stand that girl. Yeah, but so But I had a great time spending time cuz I feel like I like we we may talk a little bit in LA, but I feel like we really got to talk and hang out when we were in Colombia. So that was definitely one of the highlights of the trip was getting to know you a bit better. And that was also when you started even kind of talking about this idea you had of writing this fiction book. And it was so funny because we were on this trip with like all black queens that already had that energy. And you're like, actually, this is the kind of energy I want. This is why I feel like you know telling our stories is so valuable. So but we'll get to that. Back to you, Dev. Yeah, so so we all got to know each other even more through the Columbia trip, and so mm-hmm. we all became Kiki girls. We got a little 
you know, we got a little chat group or whatever going on. <laughs> and but so as far as Miss Foley girl, you have a long history and family history in journalism, including your mom, who was an esteemed journalist here in Detroit. I think she even met. Did she met and even possibly interview Nelson Mandela way back in the day? Yeah, she did meet Nelson Mandela. She didn't have like a one on one interview with him with him, though. But it was like when Nelson Mandela came to Detroit. Around yes. the time that apartheid and whatnot was going on, oh wow, she was she was part of that group of journalists that did get to interview with him. But no, she didn't do like the Barbara Washers, like <laughs> like one on one. But she did. She yeah. did. I know she has like a picture, she has picture. with him from way mm-hmm. back. And then that was like I remember when he came to Detroit. That was a big deal when he was released from prison. And I think that was before he became president. I think it was like in the in the term between like when he got released from prison and maybe like ninety two. And then before he became president in 94, I think he visited Detroit sometime in that in that sphere. And then also, so you have a family history of being a journalist. And then you were, well, you became a well-known journalist here, including a, a history in civic journalism as the city of Detroit's chief storyteller. Can you just tell us a little bit about that experience in particular? Uh, yeah, so I was working, um, I, I had... A, a tra- what you would call a traditional journalism career working in newspapers and magazines and stuff like that. Um, but then the mayor called, actually his chief of staff called, and then oh, yeah. <laughs> the oh, mayor yeah. through his chief of staff called and said, hey, like we have this new position and we don't, we're not exactly sure what we want to do with it, but we do know that like, um, so at the time, like, and, and still today, I mean, it's never not been the time, but like Detroit had all this, image crisis like it you know a lot of people were saying that Detroit is this Detroit is this and the city really wanted to put forth like okay what are the real stories about Detroit who really lives here Mm. you know who's making a difference and who's making an impact and stuff like that all cities have like something like that in the form of their public access channels where you turn to like like the last channel on your station and you might see like a city council meeting or something like that. But there's, I mean, all cities kind of have that little like community focus or community impact type of stuff. They wanted to take it to the next level and actually have like, okay, let's have a website. Let's have photography. Let's have short videos and social media and stuff like that. And so they asked me if I would be in charge of that. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, I'll be going to the mayor's meetings and going to the, the Manoogian mansion and all that. So um i i liked it i i really truly enjoyed it i hired an all-black staff to do it come on um because because in media in detroit that opportunity is not always there for people of color especially to advance that's so surprising because i think it about is. why is that especially as like for detroit being one of what we think of and we talked about it on other shows being a very black city. That is a whole different episode. That, okay. but, I'm gonna, <laughs> but I'm gonna try to keep it short. So um, basically, like the, I mean, in any industry, especially the media industries, whether it's publishing, journalism, television, all of the content creation mm-hmm. industry, it's it will always be twice as hard for black people mm-hmm. to succeed, even in a majority minority city. Um, a lot of people in the state of Michigan go to journalism school and Detroit is majority black, but the, the state is mostly uh, white ex- outside of some of the other black cities like Flint and Saginaw. So when you look at journalism programs, journalism schools and stuff like that, a lot of the people who cycle through tend to be white. Now, when they come out of the schools and apply for jobs, again, you know, there may be that stigma like, oh, you know, he's black and we might got to train him extra or, or the, you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's all kind of cyclical and systemic in terms of, in, into how 
a city like Detroit can have a the city has a majority black population, but the media is yeah. not reflective of that. Thank you for that. There are certain there are certain publications in Detroit that have like almost all white, you know, editorial and full time staffs. Uh, I.e., like maybe I don't know Cranes. I don't know. Cranes has one. Like... I can tell you, Cranes has one black person. Metro Times has one black person. Deadline Detroit yeah, has Met- zero black people. Deadline Detroit. I know you and those girls go back. And, is it you and Deadline Detroit mm-hmm, who go back and mm-hmm. forth a lot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And see, <laughs> oh. We can talk about that all day, but yeah, girl, yeah, because they were hating on you for getting that 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 chief a storyteller lot of role. Were. Right? I mean, a lot of people yeah. were, and like I white, did, like white people, black people, were all people. What kind of people? So the white people were hating openly, but I'll tell you this: so I don't know if you black people were hating behind the scenes, but ooh, ooh yeah. be your own. It be yeah. your own. It be your own people. <laughs> I don't know, but the people who were on Twitter trying to hate and whatnot, they were white, yeah. especially like a few white women in particular. Was, I, I mean, like, I I think that's a, a whole different type of thing in terms of like it was a lot of white women, and like I'm a black man, so like why? Yes, what's 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 the real issue that you're mm-hmm. dealing with here? So, um, but yeah, I mean, remember, I mean those, I mean the slave master's wife did a lot of wicked things too. You got to always remember oh. like. It's not just, you know what I'm saying? We always think of the slave master, but even if you read the prophets, you know, the slave master's wife was a wicked hoe too. Like, if you really think about it. I mean, I'll say this though. I mean, there is a lot, in in Detroit specifically, when black people succeed, white people get insecure because this is, it's true. It it is very true. Like the, in the further away I get from it, like living here in New York and kind of like taking a look back, um, White people come to Detroit because they think that black people can be controlled, right? Like they're, they're, they're just as they're, they may not say it out loud. It, it, it may be an unconscious thing for some of them, but you know, like they're they're thinking like, oh, these 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 black people, they're, they're not gonna, gonna get in our way. They're 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 docent. They're they're because they're, they're, they're mid, because they're Midwestern, or there's a history of it's a little bit of everything. It's a little uh, bit of that white like that. I, I think all white people have some uh, just an inkling of white supremacy, whether they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that understand that they have it of course like you know do their part to be allies and recognize it and stuff like that but i think a lot of white people in detroit don't realize that they have it so Mm. they you know they're just like well as long as these black folks don't get in our way we can we can live alongside them and Mm. and still kind of do what we want to do um but it's but you know if 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 somebody starts succeeding to a level that makes them insecure about their own professional path then that's when their true colors start to show and i think that's what was going on with me in terms of like i wasn't just getting this you know great opportunity to work for the mayor i had books out i had freelancing i was doing appearances i was i was doing for our white mayor by the way because i feel like we should we should make that note of that because you worked for our first white mayor in what 30 years like that we'd had yep. since and i think that 40 years i think yeah. for oh i remember coleman young is 19 what 73 1973 so yeah it yeah been, like 40 yeah, yeah that's 40, 40 yeah it's 40 and 40 you worked for the first white mayor that detroit had in 40 mm-hmm. years and i think that he probably i think i think that there was some element of like I mean, he probably does have more of a white staff than than other black mayors have had. And so I feel like there were some white people who maybe felt entitled to some of those roles in this new mm-hmm. white administration. I think he actually did a decent job of, you know, for all I can say about the 
mayor of actually diversifying his staff a little bit. So I think I think people were like gagged when he was hiring some high profile black people you included to come on in this role created for you, really created for you. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, it's not even that. I mean, you look at the history of any mayor in Detroit, black, white period, they are going to go after the top talent. Right. So right. you want. OK, and, so I mean, I'm, I'm kind of owning that now. It's just like, you know, and, and especially now after I left the mayor's office, that did not stop. The mayor is still bringing in top talent because it's just like, OK, you can. I was well, never... maybe not for your role. That's not top talent to me, but <laughs> no, uh, I, I will never, ever ooh. talk about anybody that takes my place. I mean, but... I like that girl, but she wasn't right for that role. I, I got to. I gotta say that girl, she's not the right one. Okay, go ahead. With the girl who took your, the girl who took your spot, she's not the right one. Keep going. Oh my god! I I have a policy where I do not. Don't talk about that girl. That's me. That's me. That's me. That's me talking. That's me talking about that girl. Go ahead. Say what you were saying. I like her though. I like that girl. Just she's not the right one for that role. I was what I was what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say was see. I forgot what I was gonna say. No. Um. No. The. You, You're talking about um, whether oh, they yeah, white or black top talent. So the thing about like like um, Devereaux knows, but like in Detroit, like you have those people who who will go work for a mayor and they'll stay with that person for like ten years, fifteen years, stuff like that. Um, that was never my goal, and it was not even the goal of the other people that had worked under the mayor that I worked with. It was just like, okay, here's the opportunity to one serve the city that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm just like, I have a very rare opportunity to give back to Detroit in a way that, you know, Detroit has given me so much and making me who I am. I want to give back a little bit. Right. But then also it's just like, um, you know, in, you talk to people who work in any kind of city administration, especially outside of Detroit, you don't work there for life. You get two, three or a full term out of that job. And then what is next? What is next for you in your career path? What do you, what kind of opportunities? Like, how can I use this to do do good do good work? Hire people, put people on. That's what I want to do. It's just like, okay, I have an opportunity to actually hire people and put some people on, and then they can go out and 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 do what they need to do, and then take all the skills I learned at this at this job, as anybody should do at any job, and go on to the next and make improve yourself along the way while also doing. The kind of good social civic whatever kind of work it is for the people i think a lot when i first took that job a lot of people were kind of hating because they thought that like oh this is it for aaron he is you know stuck with the mayor for life that's why they were gagging when i left after two and a half years to do something better than that so i'm gagged though because that role just seemed to like fit you I'm not even just saying this bias, like, as your friend. Like, I feel like that role was literally tailor-made and creative. I mean, you created it. I mean, basically, you co-created that role. And I just was gagged when you had those haters on that. But it was w- interesting, too, because white people claim to, you know, when you wrote the book, How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass, which some consider an anti-gentrification manifesto. I don't think it really was quite that. But it has some of that, you know, anti-gentrification element to it. Um it was like the white people all claim, oh, I love Aaron Foley and I love that book. And I love, and girl, have they really read the book? I'm wondering because, like, <laughs> the way some of these girls behave, like, it's like, you know, talk, tell, tell us about your book, How to Live in Detroit Without Being a but, Jackass. And when you're doing that, also, I obviously it's clear that there's a love for Detroit. Like, I mean, tell us about that as well. Like, what do you love about Detroit? What just 
other than because you know i'm from philly and i love philly but i'm not writing no book about philly not right now <laughs> <laughs> i mean i, I kind of think detroit and philly i'll, I'll just i'll just re- be real quick on it but i, I kind of think they're cousins a little yeah, bit because just, they, they both have that significant messy girls <laughs> and yeah and they, the, the the products of the of each respective city um but uh, i was hearing we're not majority black anymore in philly though so oh, you better really? watch out it's not, they, i'm, they I'm pretty it y'all are probably plurality really i think you're like plurality but not majority yeah. is what yeah. we were saying yeah I was also going to say the music out of like both have had like significant contributions to to black music and whatnot. But um, no, I love Detroit because there is it's not until you leave Detroit to go somewhere else that you realize what Detroit is. So as as a black person who grew up in a majority black city, um, it's not that I never saw white people. My grandfather is married to a white woman who lived in Detroit. Um, and you had like a few a few white people here and there in like schools or, or your teachers and stuff like that. I mean, obviously you saw white people, but like every literally every second that you live in Detroit, you are surrounded by blackness. Like, well, we had this- a law. We had a law in Detroit for at least a decade. It was only over overturned in the by the state supreme court. I think in the mid nineties that if you worked for the city of Detroit in any capacity, whether you as you had to live in the city, so as a firefighter, a police officer, a teacher in city like so there were certain little enclaves like the one i live in now and the area your grandfather lived in that were always mixed race neighborhoods because those are the neighborhoods that the white people who did work for the city chose to live in you know but, but it was a it was a majority black city for sure it, it was i mean it still is it, it still is technically, it still is. technically. <laughs> but like uh <laughs> i say technically because like it it doesn't always feel like it sometimes, especially when you go really? downtown. Like, 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 like oh. but, but growing up, like, 80s, 90s, I, th- I think that was, like, the golden time. Like, okay. 80s and 90s, 70s, it was still kind of changing. But, like, 80s, 90s, to early 2000s, like, every, like, your all your business owners are black. Your police people are black. Your firefighters are black. Your principals are black. Your teachers are black. Mm-hmm. The school board is black. All of your elected officials are black. Like every time on Twitter, you know, somebody would be like, "When's the first time you had a black teacher?" And all the Detroit people would say, "Kindergarten," because you have you have black teachers K through twelve. Um, and so when you, in my case, it was going to visit Michigan State for the first time. I did a, a I did a a program, a, a journalism program at Michigan State where um, suddenly I'm on, I'm like one of five black people mm. in this entire like teenage program. And it's all white people from like all over the state of Michigan and whatnot. And then you, you, I sensed it very early. And I, that's a very esteemed journalism program at Michigan State. Just to let the girls know like that is yeah. one of, really one of the top journalism programs in the country, really. right? It's like, a, I, I was in like the pipeline from like the, the, the high school program into the college program. Right. right so because right. um, you, you know, actively you actively chose to attend Michigan based on like that journalism program and whatnot. You knew you wanted to be a program, journalist. Yeah. Because, I, yeah. I mean, I love the campus and all that and all that they had to offer, but it was just very white. And you could kind of tell that they, that's that's when you first start to realize, like, me going to, like, a magnet school in Detroit. Like, I've always been, like, at the top or near the top of my class. And so there was never any question about, like, my intelligence or, like, my, my whatever. But, you know, coming up, like, going to that program, for instance, or going to Michigan State as a freshman when affirmative action was highly debated in Michigan. That's when people start to say, well, did you get in on a technicality? Did you get in through the quota? Like, how did you, how did you, it, it was like, it was never like, like, why did you go to Michigan State? It was just like, how did you get in? Like, mm-hmm. how did you, and then, but in, in Detroit, when you just grow up around Black excellence, you just never think about that. It's just Come like, on. it was just, it was just like a given, right? So, mm-hmm. 
Um, that's why I say like you don't realize you leave Detroit until you leave Detroit and you're just like, you know, you see why people are on TV, you think you know how they op- operate, but but it's when you start talking to them and you know, interacting with them and they start making all these like ignorant side comments and stuff like that. I remember like my freshman year of college, um, uh, we had a whole debate about the movie Eight Mile, like in because I was the oh, only like representation yeah. of, of Detroit at that time. Uh-huh. And this one white dude in my class was like, Oh, that's how all of Detroit is is ghetto, everybody's fighting, everybody's shooting. And I'm just like, Well, yes, in any major city in America, you do have violence, but I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood and everybody went to church and and there are several middle-class neighborhoods just like that that's not to downplay that Detroit doesn't have poverty and stuff like that but to kind of paint that broad brush in terms of like oh everybody's this everybody's this from a white lens when it's just like I knew I my high school I it was people from all incomes you had like upper class middle class lower class all interacting together but it's like you didn't really think about it in that way because it was everybody was black right so i I want to push back on something one thing that was that you said aaron that i I think there is some similarity (laughs) but it's some is the only person on here who's lived in both detroit and philly I think Philly. No, I, <laughs> I thought I, she was going to go to the privacy. Like, <laughs> no, 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 not because I I lived in a white neighborhood, so it was in white schools and all that. So I was used to all that racism shit. But it was it was more the Detroit Philly thing I wanted to push back on. This one thing, I think that Detroit is was in almost in a class of its own, maybe with Atlanta and DC, because I feel like Detroit had has a multi socioeconomic class of of black people more than I, I more than I observed in Philadelphia. I think mm. that there was more black like like explicit of black middle class and black wealth. And I know that black wealth exists in Philly in the neighborhoods like Miss Malachi kind of grew up in and around there, but I I saw it explicitly everywhere in Detroit. All all socioeconomic classes of black people in Detroit. And I think that Philly is just didn't have the diversity of or the the amount of diversity of blackness that Detroit had because they just didn't have the numbers we had. We were we we were running eighty percent black, and Philly was always like a fifty percent. You know, with the white with the still that white power center of that white money in Philly that really controlled everything. I thought Detroit we were in control in a lot of ways. Even mm. you know even even if not in total control, we were as black people. We were you know we had some control of the government of of certain like you know, financial elements of the city and whatnot. But I do want to ask you too, because I, the, the how to live in Detroit without being a jackass. Can you tell us about that book? Well, yeah, I wanted to get back to that. And also just white people's reception to it, which was your earlier question. Right. So, I mean, so that book was just kind of explaining like almost everything I just said, because there's like since after, um, what do you call it? The, the, the recession, Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 you know, it, I won't say completely decimated, but like, you know, a lot, a lot of black wealth disappeared, um, a lot of at leading up to the recession locally, a lot of black political power was disappearing because the schools, the public school system in Detroit had been taken over by the state of Michigan at that point. Uh, a lot of just fortunes were dwindling at that point. And that kind of laid the groundwork for, um, you know, housing prices to drop commercial, you know, the cost of getting like a commercial space, like a loft or something like that to drop. And then you had this new crop of, young white millennials they were in their early 20s at the time now they're coming up on 40 now but like but 
you know, a lot of people are like leaving places like New York and San Francisco and Austin where the prices were going mm. up and being like, oh, I can get myself a loft, you know, a 2000 square foot loft in Detroit for like $800 a month. Pennies. So, to, or, or, or remember, like, never remember, like, you can buy a house in Detroit for like a literal dollar. Like, that's how bad yeah. things had gotten. Like, I mean, it had gotten that bad for real. It yeah. Really had. And so, all of a sudden, you start seeing like new white people just coming everywhere, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And again, if Detroit is a majority black city, like, even though I was exposed to to some white people, like throughout various stages of my life because of the path I was on. I, I have known people growing up who have never interacted with white people because that's just how black Detroit was. Like you were only like literally some folks would only see them if they went into the suburbs to go to like to the mall or something like that and then come back home and like that's it. So when you go into like a store or when you go into a certain like not even a store, when you go into a certain neighborhood that has been known to be black or and or known to be the hood and you see white people like buying houses there you start mm. to do a double take like what like what, what, what what's going on but the white people who were moving into these places were not being good neighbors they were coming into mostly black or brown neighborhoods because it's happening in our in our brown neighborhoods too in the latino ones um they would keep to themselves they would do all of the markers of gentrification, like, you know, calling the cop police on people who were just hanging out on the corner, minding their business, um, you know, trying to enforce like new rules in the neighborhood, like, oh, we're going to play our volume at a certain this and you can only do this. And it's like, you just got here. You've been living here for six months and you're already trying to change this neighborhood. Um, and uh, but also just not kind of like respecting the culture around Detroit. A lot of people were saying like, oh, Detroit is a blank slate. Detroit is a blank canvas. You can do what you want here. You can do what you want though. And like they're putting these statements out into the media and like national news stories are just kind of running with it. They're just like, oh, Detroit is the new playground. Detroit Including the, new the gray, the gray lady, the New York Times, of course she was. The New York the Times used to write about Detroit constantly in this way. It's just like, here's the new Brooklyn. Here's the new, whatever It's all in Detroit. You can do what you want. Meanwhile, it's 600,000 plus black people who have been here the whole time saying like, well, we've been doing this. We've been had our businesses here. We've been preserving these neighborhoods. We have been, keeping this city alive and for you all to come into our city and say like Detroit came alive when we started moving in here that's an insult to all the people that have like been alive here right so Mm. I wrote that but to kind of like break that down and just to kind of like pass that along to the folks that are new to Detroit just kind of like like not doing like a full history of you know 300 years or whatever but just kind of break down like, hey, like this is my perspective as a black person that has lived here for X amount of time and have done some of these things that you are doing. Like mm. a lot of people came to Detroit to buy houses. My ex and I bought a house together and we tried to restore it. And I got a whole chapter in there about like what you should not do and how things are different in Detroit when it comes to buying a house. Because um, there's a whole there's a whole thing about like how just generations of ownership and how like houses deteriorate over time because because um, black wealth has also disappeared o- over time. And that means the maintenance of a hundred year old house, it gets more and more expensive. So when a lot of people buy these houses and they're just like, well, why didn't somebody patch up this brick? Why didn't somebody do this? Why didn't this do this? Because it costs $10,000 or something like that to do each one of these little repairs that HGT- HGTV tells you is cheap. So I wrote a whole, whole thing about like, you know, just yes. restoring a house, how to actually say hi to a black person in public. You know, Detroit <laughs> is a very... 
Uh, uh, no, I'm serious. Like, the white people just, don't know how to, they weren't they saying that. Weren't they weren't doing that a couple of years ago. Like, now they're doing it. But, like, you know, Detroit is a very Midwestern and Southern city. It's a it's a lot of people from down South with those old Southern manners. And you see a woman in the street, you say hi or tip your hat and nod, nod your head, something like that. It was, Deborah is in your building. That kind of prompted me to write about that someone was saying that it might have been you that was say, that was saying it that like when when it was a whole bunch of black people on the elevator in your building i didn't even say the address but you know <laughs> that but when white people would come onto the elevators they wouldn't say anything to the black people on the elevators right was that was that me i don't know I, it might have been you it was it was somebody in in your building but like mm. that's that was just kind of a micro i can't believe of that like, yeah of, of of everything going on in detroit where it's just like you you, you weren't speaking to the people you're being disrespectful in that way so that i mean that's kind of what the book addresses just like okay how how do you come into a city where one everybody knows each other and and two where everybody is where black people are the majority Mm. and you actually you know one of the things that you did that i find most fascinating is you were the editor of a certain magazine uh you know that was a black specific magazine um, and you were involved in black media too, and you were involved with NABJ, the National Association of mm. Black Journalists. So just like tell us, kind of even in Detroit, and then also nationally, you know, you even did some work with black media. What what do you think is like the state of both representation of us in the media? Because all you know, a lot of things that you talk about kind of transfer to that space, and then representation of us in the media and then also our presence in the media and our success in the media what do you what do you, what is your what do you think about the state of black media right now um the state of let, let's start with the state of black people in media before we go to the state of black black mm-hmm. media the state of black people in media i mean that has been a lifelong challenge at this mm-hmm. point for for, mm-hmm. for folks our age because like you said that my mother was a journalist and she at the beginning of her career when i was a child they were having the same conversations that we're having now like how do and we she, get... and she worked and she worked in black media specifically at one point for a long time right she worked yeah. for she yeah. worked in black media but the tr- trying to get from black media to mainstream media was like twice as more than that even four times as hard as it is now because like it used to be kind of like a springboard like you would put in your time at black media and then go to like a, a, a mainstream media outlet but only a chosen few got a chance to do that. Now it's it, it, it it's even it's even out a little bit, but still could be better. But in, the the goals have always been the same across the board. It's just like how do we get more black people into positions of power? How do we get more black people into these newsrooms? Period. The big question that came I'm going to get real historical here after the Kearney report in 1968 was having black having an adequate number of black people and people of color reflecting the communities that these newspapers and and broadcast outlets serve means that they will means that these journalism outlets will do a a better of covering their communities so after 1968 there was a big push to hire more black people but then it kind of died out because again you know white supremacy and stuff like that yeah yeah, (laughs) um and 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 that's a persistent issue today um, when we talk about like a uh, police murder, like a George Floyd or something like that, and a lot of newsrooms may do the kind of coverage that's that kind of does not take into account the feelings of Black people towards the police and things like that. And everything is, again, done through a white lens that kind of lends more of a bias toward the police and not the, mm. the, the victim. Um, that's when these issues kind of come up, up again. 
it also I look at through through it through a pop cultural lens too in terms of like who's documenting the careers of our black celebrities um, in the same way that white celebrities do. Um, there was a very notable piece I think it was in W magazine where Rihanna uh, someone had profiled Rihanna and talked about her uh, patois the the, the her mm. dialect and how she speaks mm-hmm. but this white reporter described it as didn't say didn't call it patois or even or even noted that this is how people from the Caribbean tend to in, influence their speech and whatnot mm. he said it was just like you know just kind of like her made-up secret language that she came up with off the top of her head and what? everybody was like I do, what? Remember that. <laughs> I do remember that I mean it, it'll be those little things like that where like You know, we do have black celebrities pushing back on that, though. Like Holly Berry, for instance, has really only been granting interviews to black journalists in in recent years. You know, yeah, some of them are some of them are trying to be like, okay, I want a black journalist to tell my story, you know, or even like even even like Barack Obama in some cases, like he was he would he would pick Robin Roberts to do his interview or, or you know or even i hate to use this girl but r kelly how she even chose gail king to to do that crazy interview she did but yeah. it's interesting <laughs> like, take girl yeah yeah so i'm just saying like some of the black celebrities are pushing back on this now actually and but you know it wasn't always like that for so long because the default in terms of like you know celebrities they have pr and, and their PR, pr might not be black so yeah their pr may not be black or if their pr is black they're just like well how can i get the most exposure through, through my client well i'm gonna get it through i'm gonna get them to cover a vogue i'm gonna get them on entertainment weekly and i'm gonna get them in all these the more mainstream places where there are all white staffs and or mostly white staffs and you know then that that kind of cycle just kind of kept on continuing where it's just like we look at anything with the most number of subscribers or viewers or what has happened like that but also who who's putting out that content who's editing it who's writing it is mostly white therefore like for a long time a lot of black celebrities were kind of trapped down on site for themselves and they they don't want to rock the boat right like Mm -hmm. um you know someone like Halle Berry like is only just now comfortable saying these things because like she it took her like 30 40 years to get right. to get to this point of playing when she's really past the prime of her career like the prime of her career was in the early yeah. 2000s early mid 2000s but you know sometimes it takes that kind of that kind of uh aha moment later in your life like you know and i and i still respect that even though it's coming later in her career mm. I will say that you're working in mainstream media right now. I mean, you're working as a senior editor at PBS NewsHour. So what what do you think is not just the state of black people in mainstream media, but, you know, in this Biden era where, they're, where the mainstream media is kind of missing the, the drama of the Trump era and all that bullshit? Like, what is the state of mainstream media right now? Mm-hmm. You as a mainstream journalism or journalist uh, and editor, what is the state of mainstream media? What do you think? I think I think we should not hit that panic button yet on the on what we lost after DJT left, because um, so I'm involved in a lot of meetings and stuff like that. And we talk about like, you know, viewing and and, 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 and page views and and ratings and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think a lot of the outlets that sort of built a level of trust during the djt djt era are that's carrying forward into the biden era so okay. people are still tuning in people are still reading and stuff like that 
Um, I, but those I think girls, those girls are trying to scandalize Biden just to recreate that. Some girls some, are. Some girls uh, are. There, including there. the freaking <laughs> New York Times. Like I unsubscribed from from them the other day. Oh yeah, were, I want to wrote, know. They wrote a crazy yeah. headline about Biden when the when the thirteen you oh, know dead soldiers. Son, yeah, yeah, and that he had he had mentioned his son Bo, who died not in service, but who who was a veteran who died after the fact from brain cancer. He mentioned Bo to some of the the parents of the deceased soldiers, and that they were like, oh, in one of the headlines from the New York Times was saying, oh, nobody wants to hear about Biden's yeah. dead son. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm done with the New York Times for right now. Like, I'm my fifteen dollars a month. Those girls are not getting it. Like, yeah, and I and I, I I agree with you. Like, I I mean, that was terrible. I mean, th- and that was kind of universally agreed among the industry that was terrible. Sometimes, I mean, the New York Times just be like, like they they they're like Teflon in a way, right? Like, like they they are so they find themselves above a lot of criticism. Because Although they, they, they were struggling in the Obama era. One of the things they don't want to go back to is because they, towards the end of the Obama era where they couldn't create enough scandals, like they were struggling in page views and subscribers and all of that. And it was only, you know, they were laying people off and only in the DJT era were they, they able to gain their back. mojo back and mojo back. And they don't want to go back to the, the scandal free Obama era. So they're going to scandalize Biden just to recreate the DJT era. That's what and, I'm and noticing. And that yeah, you're not too far off. I, 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 I cannot like come out right now and say like yes, it's a conspiracy or anything like that because like I, I, I don't. CNN. I, it's not just the New York Times. Yeah. I noticed it with CNN and Jake Tapper. Same thing. Both the both sides grow like that. Like I see it all the time. Trying to create. It, I mean, it, yeah. I, 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 but I, 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 what I'll say is like, kind of alluding to what I said earlier. It's just like the. The outlets that built that trust and kind of reported on things fairly do not have to sensationalize, right? Like a, one, like a PBS, because you all do an excellent job. I feel I like wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to hype up. I mean, PBS is really becoming like a standard relative to the New York Times and CNN, because I, I think PBS has always been covering journalist co- covering politicians and but in other fair more fairly than other outlets i really but then i question that. a little bit just um just for con- just thinking about like the state of media some of that is also like pbs is a public service right so thinking about how mm-hmm. some of the for-profit right. girls you know like mm-hmm. talking about page clicks and talking about you know how many papers have been closing down how local newspapers have been affected both even internet era but just in general with you know with social media and facebook algorithms and things like that catering to the bigger media outlets like i'm not making an excuse for the new york times like on those kind of girls but in some ways it's like you know when those girls have you know corporate interests and different those girls have different goals and i think some of the more investigated and some of the more diehard reporting outlets i i think but i'm curious what your take is i think when when I mean, it just really, so the one thing about public media like PBS and NPR, um, we get accused of being too liberal with a lot of things in terms of like, um, maybe not like a super left. Those girls be trying uh, to defund you. The Republican girls (laughs) are ready to defund the ticket to Congress. (laughs) Right. So like, you know, that's the, that's the push and pull we get a lot. It's just like, we, yes, we are a public service, but the public is all sides right like i'm not i'm you know i'm not i'm not both sides i'm not trying to be both sides but like the definition of the public is all sides but yet we get accused a lot of being only on one side so so that kind of we get we get that stain a little bit maybe the facts are on that the thing is is like we can't (laughs) 
you know, the New York Times will not try to cater to both sides. But if the facts are on one side or close to one side, you you have to whose, you fa- whose facts are you whose facts are you considering? But gr- my facts are different from your facts. Yeah, see, and that's you the know, bullshit that what I heard on the New York Times. Is like, <laughs> my, my pillow CEO told yeah. me some different facts. I mean, so. that's that's I mean that is I mean and, and that that's honest like the news the that world of of Newsmax and stuff like that that does that does make it hard for like every journalist in different ways it makes it hard for the folks who try to report fairly and whatnot because it's just like you have someone that is going out there getting the facts wherever the facts may lay and putting out it out in the public with no leaning or whatsoever and it get and it's true it's accurate information and it gets ignored because somebody at newsmax says well according to my research or whatever um, but it also, yeah, but it also because like the Newsmax and those types of sites are growing in traffic, are growing in 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 stature and, and whatnot, that does kind of shake up things for other outlets who try to like sensationalize their own thing. And it's just and like Fox and Fox News has been the number one cable network for. Well, not well, the, I mean, not just Fox News. The, the, you know, the one thing the New York Times gets criticized for a lot was prior to actually maybe around the obama era is they were accused of being too liberal so they started bringing in one by one a lot of conservative voices to kind of like balance it out a little bit the issue that they get criticized and then they went hard on hillary during the they tried to equalize they They really are responsible for donald like the new york times in large part not just them but cnn too but they're large part responsible for his election. Like. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these places get criticized for. It's just like once they start bringing, if it, whether it's a conservative outlet bringing in leftist voices or a, a more liberal leaning outfit bringing in bringing in conservative voices, they don't. They always get the, like the most extreme ones from the opposite side, and mm-hmm. then those extreme views get the most traffic, right? Mm-hmm. Like something like how anyone who has the audacity to say like Joe Biden his presidency is in question because he's mourning his son. That is like, that's the example of that. It's just like, how, how far can we push this envelope? Let's just push the envelope off the cliff and, and do something like that. And that does make it hard for like, I, I, I mean, the one thing I can honestly say without a doubt, is just like the, it, it, it it's always going to be like the bad apples, like ruin the whole bunch, right? It's, 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 it, there, there are far more journalists who are just literally just trying to do their job and it's a hard job. You just want to go to work, do what you need to do, clock off, do whatever you need to do. And just your whole goal is to serve the public. Your whole goal is to report honestly. And it makes it so hard for all of the, like, I, I know way, way too many of the ones that are just trying to do the honest work and give folks like all of us just the honest information that have, that get frustrated and burned out, just like y'all do, the readers, by the few that always get all the way off the edge and what makes it worse is like they have people enabling them and the people that enable them are often the people that we work to with it's, it's it's the same situation as like that one co-worker you hate which you can't say nothing about because <laughs> because they bring in the money like because <laughs> even with all that pushback to that new york times article she still got the clicks yeah we're and still we're literally we're talking about it are we not like, yeah yeah so. that's it and, and that that's the most frustrating thing about like i like my job but also i i have many frustrations about it and so I want to end kind of like on a on a on a happier, more positive <laughs> yeah. note. Pick it up, pick but it up, pick it up, pick tell it up. us, 
tell us just quickly a quick, a quick synopsis because we're gonna bring you back when we do. We're gonna do your your novel for the book club, but uh, tell Ooh. us a little bit about your debut novel. And that's voice. a big deal, girl, because you know this girl don't like to read. As yeah, says, so. <laughs> tell us about. I like I short her, form. I gave her a book for her birthday one day. I, did yeah, no, oh, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> okay, but thank you though, thank you though. But tell us about your debut, your debut novel, your first fiction book, "Boys Come First. Uh, okay, yeah, tell us in 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 one minute. Tell us what it's about. One yeah, minute, you got, you, minute. you got a little bit more than one minute. One and okay, a half. Okay. One and a half. One, I'm gonna give you two minutes. No, okay, okay, I'm gonna be quick. Okay, so uh, I've always wanted to do fiction. I became a journalist because. When I was little, I wanted to write books, but then I realized that you can't make no money doing that. So you go into journalism instead. Still can't make no money, but like, um, but <laughs> no, I, so I always wanted to do fiction and I've always wanted to, like, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a short version. We can expand on it. So I was dating a dude. I had already started the book when I was, was dating him mm. and he, we were talking about queer fiction, right? Mm. And the one thing that we stonewalled on was the fact that there's a lot of queer fiction out there, but there are mostly white male protagonists. Well, we had we had Miss Elin Harris for a while, right? We, we did, oh, and she that did was defining. Love her. And yes. then you know, may she rest in peace. Yes. But, um, but she's been dead. She's been dead a long time now, too. Yeah. So we, yeah, girls, we're missing her, her. Go back and get her books, girls. Mm-hmm. Just as I am. No, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that and that that is someone whose footsteps I walk in in terms mm-hmm. of like, come on, try yeah. try trying to create fiction with black queer protagonists because for so elan harris died in 2009 i believe 2009 or 2010 so that's a full at least 10 years that um now that there has been fiction out there with queer black protagonists but just oh, not like the, the like the book we just read, the prophet like the Robert, Robert Jones, yeah. you know, shout out to Robert. Well, also, Jones it's like I mean, not all of his protagonists had these, but also like black queer love, right? Like his protagonists were in love with other black queer men. That's that, that's another thing. It's just like there 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 is fiction out there. Some of it tends to trend to more, more like the romance, like mm-hmm. um, you know that, that that type of thing, which is fine. I wanted to do something more like, yes, like Elon Harris, but like more like Terry McMillan in terms of like writing mm. about friendships mm. and some of like the all like dating and relationships too, but also just kind of like the the whole 360 of like, what does the average black queer person deal with in their everyday life? Work, friendship, um, relationships, the people they like, people they don't like, their families and stuff like that. Mm. Terry McMillan would like built a whole career off of that in terms of like talking about like women in their everyday lives, women, yeah. you know, all, all and all black and black women in their everyday lives. And black, so yeah, that's, that, specifically, yeah, that's yes. See, that's that's growing up in Detroit because I was default to black, so I didn't have to say it. But, right, 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 right. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but yeah, you know, you know, but so I so because so wait, waiting to waiting to excel is is based off a of Terry McMillan book, right? Yep, the book movie and is uh, I'll still got a groove back. Those are her mm-hmm. two most most famous works. So and but that also just kind of creative, not uh, not single handedly creative, but just kind of lit a fire. And there's an entire genre of black books like that that I think that's kind of missing from our landscape. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, there's a lot of like. You know, the prophets is 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 very great, but it's also historical and right. and, and whatnot. There's um uh, and, and there's a lot of like like high literary like close. Have you read head. it? Have you read it yet? No, I'm gonna go down the street and get a copy from because you live right down there. <laughs> that, that, that's your name. That's your name. She's that's your my neighbor. neighbor. Yeah, that girl. 
But no, quickly in fifteen yeah. seconds. Okay, wh- fifteen seconds. Which character is based off Migro? Which character okay. is based? Oh off my I gotta, god! There are okay. So <laughs> none of them. <laughs> none of them. There are three characters. They are three black gay men, all from Detroit, all living in Detroit, and they are all at different stages in their life. But they're all in their early to mid thirties, and they are dealing with men who are trash. They are dealing with well, girl, that's me. That's me. I'm in my mid thirty. I mean, that's everybody though. That's everybody. Girl, I'm dealing with I'm dealing with a trash man right now, girl. <laughs> that that that's everybody though. And but I was thinking like there's no like um, girl. You said you told me a, one of those girls may or may not live in my building. I know. I said no. His mom lives. lives in okay. That well, anyway, building. anyway, oh we'll leave God. it there. We'll talk anyway. about it. We'll reassess when we have book club and we bring you yeah. back because I do want to. I do want to talk about because I feel like I'm sure there's some there's some relationship to you because you kind of slipped it in slightly, but you're like, oh, I I didn't really have a lot of black gay friends because of my relationship. Like, I'm sure we got we can't get into your relationship to you right now, but ooh, I feel like girl. you got some. Ooh, ooh, yeah. So ooh, we're gonna girl. save that for part two. <laughs> part two, part two, girl. We gotta get it. We will need to get into that, even yeah. though it's about the book. We gotta get into that bullshit. Yeah, because I'm sure on. it informs the book, right? Yeah. Well, my relationship. Well. Meant some of my relationships did did inform it, but yeah, that that particular relationship I was in did kind of inform a lot of it. Yes. Wow. Well, girls, teaser for four <laughs> months from now, five months. <laughs> uh, but we're still because you can pre-order the book now. Is that right? Yes, you can. Yes. You can um, through my publisher. It's great. Okay. So we're going to well, share all so that. Where? Info. Yeah, where, girl? Just tell us quickly where. Oh, um, it's uh, beltpublishing.com. Look for my name under the like. There's a drop down menu for authors. And the one, the one thing I'll just your name, say Aaron, that, Aaron Foley, A A R O N Foley. And is that yes. belt? Yeah. Is that belt like B E L T? Belt like, like a like... belt that you wear around okay. the race. Yes, like the Rust Belt, because that's their whole thing is oh. books out of the mid- Midwest and Rust Belt. Um, well, very exciting. We're definitely going to be we're because you know we love you dearly and we're so excited for you because we got to hear about the origins of this even on our trip. So we're definitely going to be promoting it. Um, speaking of, that's our show, girls. So speaking of promotions, always at Two Save Queens, IG, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. You know the T. We're playing some. We're playing some games with the social media, but um, we're gonna have some more live videos or not live videos, but have more videos and fun like that. So look forward to that. Um, where can our listeners find you, Aaron? They can find me on Twitter at Aaron K Foley or Don't, you on got Instagram. A, you got a blue check. You got a blue check on Twitter. Now. Oh yeah, oh, I got shit. a blue check on Twitter Ooh. now. Yeah, we got, yeah. We, got a, we got a blue check. Call. Wait, is this, is this our first blue check on the show? Uh, no. no, Sean. I think Sean may have had a blue check at one time. I think oh, he may have had one. She of lost. Them. I don't. Yeah, um. she lost it. She lost it. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, and I think uh, I think that's about it, girl. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. We really appreciate it. Uh, we know you know you're bu- you're a busy girl doing the good work trying to save black <laughs> black media and black news. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. That's <laughs> hard. Um, but yeah, I uh, hope y'all girls stay safe, healthy, and saved out there. Um, Deborah, any final words from you to your good Judy, to the children? I mean, I want to tell the California girls to vote in the recall, but that's oh, shit, you know, girl. we might have a Republican girl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By the time great. this comes out, it'll be the day after. So you yeah. know, girls, just just stay tuned. Fingers crossed. And, yeah, fingers crossed. That's all I want to say, girl. Pray, pray. Whoever you pray to, pray that we don't get that Uncle Tom girl as a governor <laughs> oh, of California. You know, you Larry saw how Miss Rose McGowan just Ooh, came fuck out. her, Ugh. fuck oh. her. Ooh. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next week, girls. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye, girls. Uh